Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come before you, sitting at your feet. May you give us an opportunity to quiet our own hearts and our minds. Holy Spirit, would you be working in us as we hear your word, as we hear the good news, as we see the person of Christ be magnified. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Good morning. I'll dismiss our children uh, to Children's Church. For those who uh, are friends who are ages four through seven, we'll invite them to, to hear the gospel in a manner and in a way that they can understand and that they can uh, hear Jesus being preached. Um, <clears throat> well, if you're uh, new, if you're just visiting uh, this Sunday, my name is Naman. I'm one of the pastors here and um, still an assistant pastor. Uh, I know last week's vote kind of ratified a lot of things, but that hasn't taken into effect yet. But um, we, last Sunday, we had at our congregational meeting not only uh, a vote for my pastoral call, which I'm extremely grateful for and uh, wrote about in our, in our newsletter this past week, but we also uh, voted on a huge decision uh, to acquire a building or to begin the process of acquiring our building uh, here in Oakland. Now, I realize that as we sit here this Sunday and as we look at the text for this morning and see that it's the Tower of Babel, it's not a very good optic. Uh, in fact, I, uh, I, I applaud Matt for the trust that he gave me in, in giving me a hot mic to talk about Babel ahead of a, a building acquisition, but it's not, a, it's, a, it's not any sort of passive-aggressive way of expressing my true thoughts, but uh, I will express those, uh, an affirmation of that a little bit later. But we sit here in the passage of Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel narrative because it's Pentecost Sunday. And has often has been connected that Pentecost, that the coming down of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, where he was able to have a multitude of people speaking a variety of different languages understand each other, was actually the reversal of the Tower of Babel incident, right? If we've heard this story in Sunday school before, the incident in which man decided to create this tower uh, and, the, and their language was confused. So Pentecost as this reversal of Babel. That's why we're in this passage this morning. So let, you, let me read it for you today. And as is custom here, if you were to respond afterwards with thanks be to God. Let's read God's word. <clears throat> now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly And they had a brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they will all have one language And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. 
Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. And so as we look at this passage, as we consider what it means to consider Pentecost as the reversal of this narrative, of this story, the reversal of Babel, we'll look at it in three ways. What's the, what's the heart, what's the fruit of man's aspiration? Secondly, what is God's response? And lastly, what is, what is the application? How does this actually connect to Pentecost? So the fruit of man's aspiration, God's response, and a quick application for us. Genesis chapter 11 here wraps up a larger section in the first book of the Bible, which we deem to call proto-history, the, the beginning before written civilization and written history was done. So it is an accounting of what life was like on earth before people actually started writing down history. And it's significant because chapter 11 concludes that section. It concludes the end of what we're calling proto-history or primeval history. Whereas in the beginning of a creation as we know it, it modeled a pattern of goodness, of, of good intention. The Lord created the earth out of nothingness, out of his pure grace. And he decided to speak creation into existence simply because he chose to. And when he looked at it, it was good. When he looked at us, when he looked at man and woman, it was very good. But then this pattern of goodness quickly turns and the initial good intent is then marred by human brokenness. Inevitably ruined and broken by man's desire, our natural desire, to be like God and to replace God, as we see in the fall. So this cyclical pattern continues on and on in, the, in these first 11 chapters of Genesis, as we saw with the fall, as we see with Cain and Abel, as we see with Noah and his descendants in the flood, and as we conclude here in the Tower of Babel. So what we saw earlier in the beginning of Genesis was the individual heart level of, replace, of wanting to replace God, if you will, the Tower of Babel narrative shows us the corporate nature, the community nature desire that we have to want to replace God. A little bit more background of, of who these people were that's mentioned in this text, verse 2, it says, the people migrated from the east and they settled in a place called Shinar. Now, any time in the Bible that you read the word east, it's supposed to cue for you that this is a bad direction, that going east is not a good place. It's maybe the modern equivalent of things going south, right? But the biblical equivalent is, is east. When Adam and Eve, after the fall, they were exiled, they were exiled, and the east entrance of the garden was guarded by a cherubim with swords of fire. Cain, after killing his brother Abel, the first murder recorded in the Bible, received judgment from the Lord, and then he decided to settle east of Eden. When Abraham and Lot later in the book of Genesis are separated, Abraham decides to settle in Canaan, where Lot travels where? Eastward, and settles in a place called Sodom. For all intents and purposes of biblical theology and interpretation, east was a dir direction that was not good. East was a direction away from the presence of God. That anytime you see someone going east, 
It's probably in rebellion and away from the presence of the Lord. So they migrated from the east and they settled in a place called Shinar. And Shinar is also a, a fairly significant place to recognize. In the chapter previous to Genesis 11, in chapter 10, lists the descendants of Noah after the flood. Uh, after, and after the flood happens, <clears throat> there was a mighty hunter and a leader by the name of Nimrod. And his kingdom began, as it says in chapter 10, began at Babel in the land of Shinar. So Nimrod was the leader of this place called Shinar, and Nimrod in the Hebrew actually directly translates to, we shall rebel. And as was colloquially deemed and termed in probably the earlier mid-80s, at that time, and probably even today, you do not want to be called a Nimrod. And the heart of that, the very meaning of his name is, we shall rebel. Now, a lot of people have deduced then that Nimrod, as the leader of this area called Shinar, where Babel was, actually oversaw the building and the management of the Tower of Babel. So the person sitting at the helm of this construction, of this initiative, at the very heart of his name is rebellion. So we see the, the, the inner workings of the background of, of this narrative. So how did the people of Shinar in the city of Babel, how did they rebel? Well, verse 4 tells us that their main prerogative was to build a city and a tower to top the heavens for their own namesake so that we can build a name for ourselves. The very nature of the people that were left in the world after the flood was to build themselves up rather than build up the merciful God who had just saved them from a global natural disaster. They were rebelling against their Savior. Now, why were they rebelling? What was the horrible alternative for them not to do this for themselves? Well, they said later in verse 4, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Right? They do not want to be these nomadic people who had nowhere else to go, no place to call home, no kingdom established for themselves. For the sake, so, for the sake of their man-made artificial sense of security and trust and belonging, they said, let's establish our own city, our own tower that can top the heavens. Now, the irony in that sentiment of wanting to establish their own city and not be dispersed is that it goes against the very grain of who God created them to be. Genesis 1, verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, the very intent of what they were trying to do goes against who God created them to be. God created us. God created them to be a people to disperse over his entire creation, to be fruitful, to multiply, to steward his creation, to steward his gifts. And their desire, their knee-jerk reaction was, no, let's settle. Let's hoard the resources that we have. Let's use what we have so that we can build a name for ourselves and not for God. The fabric of who we are as divinely created in the image of God is to disperse throughout the world, not to settle for what we have. We were created to be stewards of these gifts, stewards of the land, to be fruitful, to multiply, and not be falsely satisfied by what we, what we can make with our own hands. 
Now, even as I look to describe the people and what happened at Babel, uh, it's very easy for me to give them a moniker like the Babelites or the Babelese or maybe even more naturally, the Babylonians. Now, that's, that's not a coincidence there where in the time that Moses is recording this primeval proto-history that the events of Moses' contemporary time, he likens rebellion, he, he likens the essence of these rebellion people to his equivalent of, a, of the idolatrous hub of his time, Babylon. The Babylonians, Babylon, the highly proud, the ones who are dependent on their achievements, on their technology, on their own competence. Babylon was the prime example of what it looked like to have an entire city, an entire civilization base their foundational worth on their own achievements. For the biblical thematic purposes, Babylon was the capital of evil, the center of their own universe, the statue of sin and rebellion, and the human pinnacle of autonomy. So Moses is trying to inflict these ideas of, of Babylon, of a nation, a civilization, wholly devoted to building ourselves up, building up a name for ourselves. Now, take a pause and to reflect on, on how that relates to us. And if we were to take an honest look at the modern equivalent of this, is it too far-fetched to say that we live in such a country? Is it too far-fetched to say that we live in a country based on human aspirations, on human achievements, on building up a name for ourselves? There are so many connections that we can make in, in American history, that we are a country based on a history of having freed ourselves from an unjust tyranny, and that we've tied up our bootstraps, and that the, the very essence of the American dream is to believe that anyone, regardless of where they were born, of where they came from, can attain their own version of success in a society where upward mobility is possible for everyone. If you try hard enough, if you, if you put in the time, the effort, the blood, sweat, and energy, you can achieve the American dream. Now, this is not to say that I'm anti-aspiration, that I'm anti-achievements and anti-wanting to build success for yourself, but when that is at the heart, when that is at the root of who we are and why we do what we do, it is functionally replacing God. Now, maybe you disagree with me, and if you're not convinced that we live in a country that is the modern metaphor of primeval Babylon here, is it fair to say that we live in a global society where all of these countries, all of these global powers, the thrust of it is human aspiration? To be a global superpower, to be the leader in cutting-edge technology <clears throat> to be the most influential economic force, the hub from which value is defined, from where culture is set forth. The Tower of Babel story here in Genesis 11 is not just a glimpse at the state of mankind before history was written, but it's actually supposed to be a mirror for us today. What does it look like for us to have our own aspirations be the main thing that drives us to do what we do? How are we functionally replacing and usurping God in our own lives? We're inclined to build our metaphorical bricks 
with our own hands. We want to elevate ourselves in ways that rivals and even tops God. That our dying wish is to build a legacy that will last so that people will remember our names forever. There's not a time that goes by when I visit a library here in Pittsburgh or even when I'm on campus at CMU that I don't ask, who is Andrew Carnegie? Why was he so important? What was the impact that he had on this city? And as I asked for myself, what is my Babel? What is my own aspiration? What are, what are my dreams? What are my goals? What are everything that my budget, my time, my efforts, my worries are funneled through? And how exactly is God involved in that? What is your babble? What is this church's babble? What is our city and society's babble? Very quickly, we can see that the fruit of all of this human aspiration, although good things, can lead down to a very slippery slope. And so for the purposes of this narrative of the text that we just read, how does God respond? How does God respond to this Babylonian aspiration? And I'll answer that question through a very uh, technical way of, of looking at actual the grammatical style of this story. Now, it's a, a little bit lost when it's just printed here in the English, and that's the beauty of having this on Pentecost Sunday, that when we consider the original language of, of this Hebrew story here, there is a beauty in the way that Moses lays this out in a structure, in a chiastic structure, or simply put, a sandwich structure, right? And so in verses 1 and 9, the first and last verses, it talks about the language of the earth. And then as you get into the, the center of that sandwich, verses 2 and 8, they settled there, and then they were dispersed from there. And then honing in a little bit more, verses 3 and 7, the people say, come, let us make bricks. But then God says, come, let us confuse. And a little bit closer, verses 4 and 5, they built a city and a tower built for themselves. And then the Lord comes down and he assesses the city and the tower that was built from themselves. Now, anytime a Hebrew author would use this sandwich structure, the main crux of that structure, the main purpose of that passage is to focus on the center of it. As any good sandwich, it's defining quality of what's in the middle. And the crux of this passage is the beginning of verse 5. And the Lord came down. The Lord came down. Now there is the gospel presented in the Old Testament in primeval history, in just five words. And the Lord came down. In the thick of self-driven human aspiration, the height of their own pride, quite literally, there are no sweeter words that we can hear, that they could hear, than the reality that God would come down. Of course, God knew that the Babylonians could never actually build a tower tall enough to reach him. That's absurd. It's folly to think that this gap could be bridged by human aspirations, by human effort. A gap that was actually created, not just in physical distance, but a gap created by pride, rebellion, and sin. But the irony is that the end goal, 
But the end result, the solution is for that gap to be bridged. For there to be an existence where the brokenness and the distance that separates the creator from his created is actually restored. But at the end of the day, that gap cannot be bridged by the work of our own hands. That God has to come down. So it's fair to say that the sin in constructing the Tower of Babel was not the desire to reach God. In fact, that was a good desire. The sin in constructing the Tower was the disillusionment that we could reach God by ourselves. That we could reach God, we could be better than God by our own selves. Um, For nearly 50 years, from 1947 to 2005, a person that you may have heard of by the name of Billy Graham, uh, hosted over 400 crusades, what he deemed these evangelistic campaigns, in over 185 countries for almost 50 years. Anybody here been to a Billy Graham crusade? Raise your hands. A good number of us. This week marks the 50th anniversary of Billy Graham's largest crusade ever in Seoul, South Korea. In 1973, over the course of five days, over 3.2 million people came to hear Billy Graham preach the gospel. In a single day, on the last day, 1.1 million people sat in a small island on the Han River in the city of Seoul. Now, I found out a couple weeks ago that my mother was at one of these crusades. She was 15 at the time, and she was there with her mother, my grandmother, and they were both in attendance. And as Billy Graham was well known to have done, at the end of his preaching, he would, he would do an altar call. He would ask people to rise. If, you want, if you're not a Christian, if you want to accept the Lord and Savior today, please rise and we'll come and we'll pray for you. And on the day that they were in attendance, my grandmother stood up. But mind you, my grandmother was already Christian. My grandmother was the matriarch of faith in our family. In fact, I remember her as the person where whenever she would visit our house and stay overnight, that I would hear her audible prayers at the crack of dawn. She'd be praying for us, our family members, her grandkids, and anything in between. She was the person, uh, the the matriarch of why our family became to know Jesus and, and why we are who we are. And so, at the time when my mom saw my grandmother stand up, who was already a strong, devout Christian, she asked her later, why did you stand up? And my grandmother responded, I just wanted to get a better look at Billy. (laughs) With over a million people sitting around her, she couldn't really see, she's like, I just wanted a better look at Billy Graham. Why do I share this story? Oftentimes in life, It's not the trajectory of where we're headed, wherein lies the sin, but it's the heart. It wasn't the desire to reach God that was the heart of sin for the Babylonians, but it was the heart desire to build something that would place themselves equal to God. Reaching God is a great thing. Trying to do so by replacing Him is where the sin lies. What the Lord so deeply desires for us is a heart posture where we would rise, where we would stand up, just so that we can catch a better glimpse of our Heavenly Father. What God wants for us is a a faith that would want to navigate our ways through the thickest of crowds of mobs 
just to reach out with our fingers and touch even just the hem of Jesus' clothes to be healed. That we would disregard all of the busy work, the to-do lists that we have, the budgets and the schedules that is causing us stress, this work that is piling up, a list that we think will grant, grant us satisfaction and worth, to set that aside, simply to sit at His feet and to listen to His words. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not denouncing aspiration or technology or even success and achievement, but I'm denouncing this heart temptation that we can exist for ourselves. But our des- God's desire for us is to give Him glory for the one who provides for us all of these things. That in order for us to have meaning in this life, to feel like we've accomplished something, to feel like we can actually boast in something, to have something actually build up, the answer is simple. The Lord has to come down. The Lord has to tell us what that is. All of these aspirations and drives and efforts has to be channeled through the work that God has done for us. It's not our our accomplishments that we're boasting in, but in the finished work of something that Jesus has already accomplished for us. No new fancy gadget or state-of-the-art technology can replace for us what an old rugged cross and a set of nails could do in restoring our relationship with God. It's not our name that we're building for ourselves, but the name of Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So both in your lowest moments and in your highest achievements, the defining moment of all of that should be the Lord came down. God intervened for me when I was at my worst. God intervened for me because now I have these successes, these achievements, this sense of worth. It's all redefined for us, not because of what we can do, but the reality that the Lord came down. And so to to wrap up um, an application, how does this narrative, how does this story tie in with what we're trying to remember and celebrate today? How does this actually relate to Pentecost, and why is Babel deemed the reversal of Pentecost? God had to come down, and come down He did. He fulfilled the promises that Jesus spoke in the Gospel of John that we read earlier in the call to confession and the assurance that He would send a helper, that God Himself would come down so that we could have the power of the living God resting in us so that we can share the very news that Christ has died. Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. The judgment on our primeval ancestors here in Genesis 11 was to confuse a single common language that they all shared so that they could not understand each other. And Pentecost is the reversal of that, and that in spite of the variety and diversity of languages that existed and the cultures, we are united under a larger banner of identity. Both at Babel and Pentecost, there was bewilderment. Bewilderment at Babel because they used to speak all the same language and now they don't even understand each other. But there was bewilderment at Pentecost because they knew they came from different places. They knew they spoke different languages and had different customs, and yet they could still understand each other. Yet they could still be unified under the same goal. 
Now notice that God doesn't just reverse Babel by having everyone at Pentecost speak the same language. He preserves each of their languages. He preserves each of their traditions and cultures and customs, but he still has them be able to understand one another. The beauty of what it's like to sing in languages of the, the various people of God, of hearing testimonies of what God is doing, not just in Pittsburgh, not just in our own lives, but in the world around us, that we, we are united by something far greater than just ourselves. Many of us come from a different background, a different upbringing. Uh, some of us speak different languages, eat different foods, have different traditions and customs that we celebrate. And the beauty of Pentecost is that the ministry of the church, the entirety of this range of diversity is, can be and will be honored and unified because of what Christ has done for us. The prerogative of the Holy Spirit is not to consolidate everyone to make them into the same homogenous people, but that in these differences, we can see the face of Jesus. The gospel is a universal language that unites sinners of all shapes, sizes, and that we need God to come down to restore us to himself. Pentecost reminds us that it is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit for the sake of reconciliation, for the sake of restoring and bridging that gap with God, but also with each other, preserving our own diversities and establishing a new family, a new body, the church of Christ as one represented in many tribes, many tongues, many languages. So that this allows us not to settle, not to hoard, but to be dispersed. What the Babylonians took as God's judgment at the end of Genesis 11 so that they were dispersed from the face of the earth was ironically actually their blessing, that God was able to re-equip them and send them out for the purposes that he created them to be, to be fruitful, to multiply. So then we are dispersed to proclaim the same message. I'll begin to close a little bit with this. COVID obviously was a time of great stress and burden and isolation. Uh, and for those two or three years too, personally for, for me and my family, it was also likewise, and, and maybe even more so. There was a period during the pandemic where we as Korean American Christians here in Pittsburgh were witnessing a lot of anti-Asian sentiments and, and hate crimes being done because of the pandemic. Maybe we didn't experience it personally ourselves, but we were reading about it in the news. We were reading about horrific events of Asian American people, elderly people being targeted because of the disease. And inevitably, there was a period there where Sarah and I, my wife and I, we were sitting there, and we felt very isolated. We felt very alone. We felt like we didn't know where to turn to, that we spoke a language, metaphorically, that other people didn't understand. Graciously, at the time, we, we, we did send a note. We sent an email to all of our leaders of our church, to the session, to the council, to the deacons, to a lot of our leaders, and we were thankfully met with a lot of grace, of, of understanding Maybe I don't know where you're coming from. Maybe I don't know this language, but I want to sit with you and I want to hear what that isolation is like for you. That for us to be a church, to be this diverse family of God, we don't need to know how to speak all of these words to the T, 
But there has to be a posture in which we're engaged to listening to people who are different than us. That it's not about just proposing our own agenda and what we're comfortable with, but to be able to sit in that empathy and to hear from people who are different from us and hear how God is working in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Um, I'll begin to invite the band up as, as I wrap up here. You know, a week ago we did, we did vote on this acquisition of the new building. And my bringing up Babel is not in any way a contradiction of that, but actually is an affirmation of that. God has called us to be fruitful, to multiply, to be dispersed. And while we feel like we've done that over the course of the history, the 20, almost 20 year history of our church where visitors can come and say, man, you've been in a different place every time I've visited you. We now have this opportunity to receive, to take and steward the resources that God has given us to think about how can we be fruitful and multiply with what God has given us. And we as a church, as a session, as a leadership firmly believe that this is one way in which God is calling us to consider that. That to establish for ourselves a presence in Oakland, in the city, so that we can proclaim the gospel, so that countless others can hear the gospel is somewhere where we feel like the Lord is leading us. We want to use our technology, our achievements, our resources, our aspirations, not so that we could build ourselves up. The purposes of acquiring this building is not to build up the name of City Reformed, but to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. We want the Holy Spirit to unite us, this diverse body of believers, of brothers and sisters of this new family established for us by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can sit, so that we can be present, so that we can hear and empathize, so that we can be a beacon and a light for those in this city, to be present with each other, to understand each other. So my hope, my encouragement, my point of application is this, is please pray for us. Please pray for this church as we seek to do that, as we seek to live out the diverse power of the Holy Spirit to seek reconciliation with the world around us so that others would come to know that God came down and that he established for us all of our aspirations, all of our identities, all of our sense of worth because of what Jesus has done for us. Would you pray with me?